Last Sunday, I talked about the love of God. And this week, I want to talk about why the love of God is important in our life. And so to do that, I want to invite you to take God's word and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. As we begin the Christmas season, we're going to hear what people truly believe about our God and about Christ and about the Holy Spirit. So today, I want to show you from Scripture how God is presented in the Bible. The Bible is our authority, not man or tradition. Isaiah chapter 6, we're only going to look at the first four verses today, but I do want to go ahead and read the chapter so that you would just have that in your mind as we study it together. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. And your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull. Their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, yet there will be a tenth portion in it. And it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The book of Isaiah is one of the most significant books in the Old Testament. Its title is taken from its author, whose name means the Lord is salvation. It's similar to the names like Joshua and Elisha and Jesus. Isaiah is quoted directly in the New Testament over 65 times, far more than any other Old Testament prophet. 
It's also mentioned by name over 20 times. We're told in chapter 1 and verse 1 that the book of Isaiah was written by Isaiah, the son of Amoz. And his ministry extended some 60 years from 739 to about 681 B.C. In other books of the Old Testament, we see God's power and righteousness, like in Exodus, or we see His justice, like in the book of Judges. But here in Isaiah, the veil of history is actually pulled aside, and we see God directly in all of His glory. It's just like the veil that's removed in Job chapters 1 and 2. Here it's removed in chapter 6. Now, Isaiah spoke out to Judah during those critical years of the Assyrian expansion when the northern kingdom Israel was destroyed. And after 52 years of prosperity that Israel enjoyed, now we read in the first verse that the king is dead. Judgment here is imminent. If you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, you read judgment. You also read in the first five chapters opportunities for repentance. And now in chapter 6, the scene that we see here is a scene of judgment. And we see here a vision of God on His throne. Notice verse 1 says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. This occurred around 740 B.C. Isaiah's ministry began in the last year of Uzziah's life. And just a footnote, Uzziah is also known as Azariah. Over in 2 Kings 15.7, it says, Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Jotham his son became king in his place. 2 Chronicles 26.22, which is the parallel of that, says, Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written. So Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave, which belonged to the kings. For they said, He is a leper, and Jotham his son became king in his place. And this is how we know we're talking about the same individual, because he has the same son who bears the same name, Jotham. Uzziah had ascended to the throne when he was just 16 years old. We can imagine any 16-year-old leading a country or a nation. But you had it here, and he reigned for 52 years. Now, that's amazing because in the past 52 years in the United States, we have witnessed the administrations of Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan. And not to mention the most recent presidents, but many people in Jerusalem had lived their entire lives under the reign of King Uzziah. But we see the occasion here for why Isaiah goes into the temple, and the occasion is the death of Uzziah. And there's a question that's not even answered in verse 1. And the question is this, what caused his death? Well, two words. Uzziah's sin. Second Chronicles 26 and verse 16 attributes it to his pride. And of course, as we've seen on other occasions, pride brings down kings 
as well as kingdoms. If you remember Nebuchadnezzar, remember when we read in Daniel 4 that he was made like an animal until he recognized that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes? Well, 2 Chronicles 26, beginning at verse 16, records what exactly happened. So if you want to just hold your finger there in Isaiah 6 and go back further in the Old Testament to 2 Chronicles 26, I want to read verses 16 through 22 here. And you will get a better understanding of what took place. It says, But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That is your problem right there. The only people that could have anything to do with the temple and the incense and the offerings were the people that God designed to do those things. And only those people could do it. It's just like when David had the Ark of the Lord transferred on a cart and they moved it along on a cart. It was supposed to have been carried by poles, but yet it was carried on a cart, and the very moment that the cart hit a hole in the road and the ark began to shake, Yuza put out his hands to catch the ark to make sure it didn't fall off, and that sounded like a noble thing to do, right? Wrong. Because you weren't to touch the ark. And so the very moment that his hands touched that ark, God killed him. You find here, in this situation, Uzziah is acting unfaithfully. He goes into the temple, as verse 16 says, to burn incense on the altar of incense. It says in verse 17, Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men, they opposed Uzziah the king, and they said to him, It's not for you, Uzziah to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priest, the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and you have no honor from the Lord God. Eighty priests opposed him. But what did he do? It says, But Uzziah with a censer in his hand for burning incense was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest... Look what happened. Leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous on his forehead and they hurried him out of there and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord has smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz, has written. His death is attributed to the consequences of his sin. Remember, the wages of sin is death. And it's amazing that his epitaph was not about his amazing accomplishments like 
developing Judah into a strong commercial and military state, or making a port for commerce on the Red Sea, or the construction of walls and towers and fortifications, or that he had done right in the sight of the Lord almost all his life. 2 Chronicles 26.5 says he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the visions of God. As long as he had sought the Lord, God prospered him. 2 Chronicles 26.8 says the Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah. His fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the corner buttress and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness and hewn many cisterns, for he had much livestock both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. Second Chronicles 26.13 says, Under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. And moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence, his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. That was his downfall. And in spite of all of his accomplishments, what was read on his tombstone? 2 Chronicles 26, 23. He was a leper. You know, you hear about all of his accomplishments until you read those other passages I just read to you. But what you read is about his sin and the consequences of it. 2 Chronicles 26, 23. So Uzziah slept with his fathers. They buried him with his fathers in the field of the grade which belonged to the kings. For they said, he is a leper. And Jotham his son became king in his place. Amazing. A man to have reigned as long as he did to end the way it did. Tragic. But beloved, if anything we see from that, God is not mocked. God calls for complete obedience to his word. And there were consequences if you didn't obey. So, Uzziah is dead. And Isaiah comes into the temple. And he comes into the temple, and it says here, he saw the Lord. What's significant about that? Well, if you have a monarch who had reigned for as long an amount of time as Josiah did, that would produce stability for the nation. And also, all of a sudden, if that monarch is killed, now you have instability. And so Isaiah comes into the temple, and what does he see? He sees that even though the earthly monarch is no longer on the throne that he had reigned for 52 years, God is still on his throne. Because, beloved, you need to understand this, and I think you do from hearing it in 2 Chronicles, God killed him. Do you understand that? He struck him with leprosy. 
And he lived his final days as a leper, and he died. Our death, as well as our life, is in the hands of the Almighty. All of our days are numbered. We don't know the day of our death, nor do we know the circumstances by which it will bring it about. But yet God does, and God is in control of that. So he says, he saw the Lord. Now, 1 Timothy 6.16 says that no man can see the Lord. And God even told Moses in Exodus 33.20, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. But he was allowed, according to Numbers 12.8, to see the form of the Lord. And that's why the Apostle John said in John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Who is He talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Philip even asked Jesus in John 14.8, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus responds in John 14.9, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? See, what Isaiah saw was a theophany. A theophany is a visible manifestation of God. And I'll be more specific. According to John 12, 41, the one he saw seated on the throne was the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, you're stretching that text. No, I can prove that. Go with me to John 12. John chapter 12. And let's begin at verse 35. John 12, 35 says, So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's Isaiah 53.1, also quoted in Romans 10.16. For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. And that is now Isaiah 6 and verse 10. Then notice this. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. This is Jesus on the throne. Isaiah saw him in this vision. Jesus said in John 12, 45, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Now the Hebrew word for Lord, he says, I saw the Lord... That is the Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai means sovereign one or sovereign 
master. It's used also in verse 8 as well as in verse 11. Now, according to Isaiah 1 and verse 1, this was a vision. This was a vision that Isaiah had, and it was very similar to the vision that Milkiah had in 1 Kings 22.19. Milkiah said in that verse, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing by Him on His right and on His left. This is also a similar vision that we find in Revelation chapter 4. If you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. And we see this vision here of the four living creatures. Notice what it says. After these things I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and crowns, or golden crowns, on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. So the vision that Isaiah had was very similar to this. He sees these angelic creatures. But not only that, he first sees the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ sitting on his throne. And again, I tell you that that is significant in this time period. Because to have a monarch reign for 52 years would provide such stability for the country. And to have that interrupted would take that away. But in spite of all of that, God is still on his throne. And can I just offer a little practical application to this for even today? Regardless of who you like up there in Washington representing us, number one, we're to pray for them. Number two, we're to pray for their salvation. And also, number three, we're to understand God put them there. God put them there. 
No king, no president, no leader is in their place of authority unless God gives them that authority and puts them in that place of authority. And he chooses reasons why he does this. We find it all through the Old Testament. Many times it's to judge a nation, to give them a wicked ruler. And the people become oppressed by that wicked ruler. Scripture reveals that God's coming is often accompanied with earthquakes, smoke, fire, lightning. We read that in Revelation 4 as you saw the lightning coming from the throne. In the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus 19 and verse 18, prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, we're told that Mount Sinai was all in smoke. And why was that? It says, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Can you imagine the scene? And could you imagine seeing such a marvelous sight and what your response would have been if you'd have been there? Well, Exodus 20 and verse 18 reveals their response. It says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled. And they stood at a distance. I could just see it now. What do you do when you see something amazing? When you see something that terrifies you, you start backing up, don't you? You know why that is? The word fear means flight. You're about to run. <laughs> and rightly so. <clears throat> could you imagine such a sight? I just want to tell you that the church didn't have this vision today. And the world certainly doesn't have this vision of God either. Because if we did, we wouldn't do what we do. The church wouldn't be what it is in a lost world. Instead of speaking out against sin, what's it do? Embrace it. If the church had a vision of a holy God, as we see here in Isaiah 6, the church would be effective. The church would be evangelistic. The church would witness to anything on two feet. The church would be concerned about souls instead of political parties. Instead of pleasing everyone in the culture. Since when has the church ever sought to please the culture? Well, that's what it's doing now. It's becoming harder and harder to find churches that are faithful to the Scripture. And if they're not dealing with those current battles like we find today, we find other battles that they deal with and the people still aren't willing to be obedient to the Scripture. All my life in pastoral ministry, and I've had to say this to several churches, 
Why can't we just do what it says? That's what I say. God has given to us in His Word a blueprint. Master plans for what? For a lot of things. We have the master plans of the world, Genesis 1-11. through We know where all the nations came from. We know where man came from. We know where sin came from. But when you start ignoring those foundational chapters, then you get what we have today. We have a culture coming up that doesn't even know the Lord. And that is partly because the parents don't know the Lord either. You know, when I was growing up, and when many of you were growing up, you can remember that your parents went to church, and your parents took you to church, right? And if your parents didn't go to church, they at least made sure you went, even though that was very hypocritical, right? The Bible tells us in even two other places that the scene when God shows up is fire, clouds, thick darkness. Psalm 50 verse 3 says, Fire devours before him and it's very temptuous around him. Or Psalm 97, 2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. I mean, go back into the Old Testament and just remember, how did God lead the children of Israel through the wilderness? It was a cloud by day and fire by night, right? And again, could you imagine the scene? There was one man during all that time whom God spoke face to face with. Who was that? was Moses. And even on one occasion when he came down from the mountain speaking with the Lord that the glory of God called the Shekinah glory was on his face and people couldn't look at him because of how brilliant it was and so he had to veil his face so people couldn't see it. I mean, when I look today and compare what's going on in the culture, what's going on in the church, we do not have a fear of this holy God who is on His throne. We play church. We decide if we're going to church many times by how we feel when we wake up on Sunday morning. I don't feel like going. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like praying. You know what happens when you feel like that? It's very simple. You don't do it. If you don't feel like praying, you don't pray. If you don't feel like reading the Bible, you don't read the Bible. If you don't feel like going to church, you don't go to church. Unless you're the type that pushes and pushes and pushes and says, that is wrong. Those feelings are wrong. I don't trust those feelings. I reject those feelings and I'm going to the house of God. And I'm going to worship with God's people. 
You know, there's coming a time, and this is why we've been praying for the persecuted church, but there's coming a time that we may be one of those persecuted churches scattered. There's coming a time when the true church will become underground everywhere. You realize that? You can't read the book of Revelation and not see that, can you? Isaiah says he saw the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on a throne. This here is speaking of sovereignty. This is also in heaven where God rules. He rules both heaven and earth from his throne. And regardless of the status of the earthly king, God is always sitting on his throne ruling heaven and earth. Look at the description that Isaiah gives of this throne. He says it's lofty and exalted. That means that it was greatly elevated. And the imagery here is taken from the practice of earthly kings. They had elaborate thrones. And these elaborate thrones, you can go back in history and you can see the great monarchs of Egypt and Assyria. And they had these massive thrones. Uh, We have actually a description of Solomon's throne over in 1 Kings 10. Listen to this. Beginning at verse 18. This is 18 through 20. It says, Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and a round top to the throne at its rear and arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps on the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. Isn't that amazing? And the place at the summit of the six steps, the occupant was high and lifted up above the people. And so that's what Isaiah sees when he comes into the temple. He sees Jesus sitting on a throne, elevated, rightly elevated, I might add. And then he says he saw the train of his robe. That's the hem or the fringe of his robe. Uh, To help you understand that better, you remember in a wedding, and you remember the wedding gown that the bride wears? And you remember the top part that has a train coming down. And some get to be pretty elaborate, right? Well, that train was all over the temple. It was everywhere. It filled the temple. And why was that? What's the significance of that? Well, it's the same as from history. Flowing robes were commonly worn by great monarchs. And so Isaiah here is seeing this all-filling robe of the indescribable one. In fact, the ground was covered by this splendid robe, and there was no room for anyone to stand because you didn't stand on the robe. It filled the temple. So look at this scene, this vision that he has. Almost like in Acts 10 when, when Peter is, falls into a trance and he has that vision. Very similar. So he sees Jesus on the throne. He sees this high and lofty, exalted, elevated throne. He sees this train 
of his robe and it's just filling everywhere in the temple. There's nowhere to stand. And then the next thing he sees, he sees seraphim. What are seraphim? Seraphim are only mentioned twice. And it's right here. That is mentioned by name. Seraphim are angels. Angels created by God. The Hebrew word for seraph literally means burning ones. This suggests that they had a fiery appearance. Two translations, the TEV and the CEV, translates this as flaming creatures. The NCV translates them as heavenly creatures of fire. It's interesting that in Egypt, there have been found eagle, lion-shaped figures guarding a grave to which applied the name seraph. In Jewish theology, seraphim were connected with cherubim and othanium. And these three were the highest order of attendance for Yahweh. And they were superior to the angels who are messengers sent on various errands. We find elsewhere in the Old Testament, the word seraph actually referred to poisonous snakes in Numbers 21.6, Deuteronomy 8.15, Isaiah 14.29, and Isaiah 30 and verse 6. And perhaps they were called burning ones because of their appearance or because of the effect of their venomous bites, which would cause a victim to burn up with fever. It's possible that the seraphs seen by Isaiah were at least partially serpentine in appearance. That's not unusual because did you hear the appearance that we described of the four living creatures in Revelation 4? One writer says, Though it might seem strange for a snake-like creature to have wings, two of, them, two of the texts where seraphs or snakes describe them as flying, perhaps referring to their darting movements. J. Vernon McGee says, The word seraph is the word used in connection with the sin offerings and the judgments. Apparently the seraphim are contrasted to the cherubim. The seraphim search out sin and cherubim protect the holiness of God. And I find that to be very profitable because if you ever studied about cherubim, cherubim were pictured all over the temple. There were actually two cherubim on the ark of the Lord that overlooked the ark. And they had them all over the curtains that separated the Holy of Holies from the inner sanctuary. The Bible mentions angels 296 times. And out of that 296 times, we're only given two of them by name. You have Gabriel and Michael. Every time angels are referred to in the Bible, they're used in the masculine form. There are no female angels. None. They're male. Every picture of angels in the Bible is masculine. So as you begin to decorate for Christmas, there's another thing you have to correct here. Not only do you have to get rid of the wise men, the wise men were not at the birth. They were there two years later. Read Matthew 2. And they're at that time in a house. 
they're not at a stable. So you got to get rid of that. You say, oh, darn, I just bought a nativity scene, and it's got it in it. That's okay. Just push it off. I told you about a gentleman that many of some of the other people here know, Maurice. First time I preached on angels, he was shocked when I said that there were no female angels. Because he liked that show, Touched by an Angel. And that show, Touched by an Angel, any of you ever seen it? Touched by an Angel, they're all female. Well, not all of them. There's The death angel was male. And I told him, I said, Maurice, you can't get your theology from TV. You can't get your theology from Touched by an Angel. You've got to get your theology from the Bible. It's okay if you like the show. Just remember... There are no female angels. Each time angels are mentioned, though, they appear as intelligent, moral, spiritual beings created by God who worship Him and who carry out His will. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? There have been many people that have entertained angels unaware as Hebrews 13 talks about. Well, he says, he sees the seraphim, verse 2, and he says they stood above him. Now, the preposition above in Hebrew, it could indicate above, but it also could indicate around. They were around the throne. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says they were round about him. Next, Isaiah says that they had six wings. This is literally six wings, six wings to each. That's how it reads in the Hebrew. Representations of angels with six wings is not unusual because archaeologists have actually discovered them in the Near East when they find pictures of angels. They have found them with six wings. Isaiah tells us what those wings are used for. If you look there in verse 2, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. With two he covered his face, that was a sign of reverence. It was also because that they dare not gaze directly into the glory of God. In Ezekiel 1, the cherubim fly with two wings and they cover their bodies with the other two. The seraphim cover their bodies with four wings, and they fly with two. And then he says, with two he covered his feet. This was a sign of humility. In fact, by the feet, the Hebrews mean all the lower parts of the body. But the people of the east, generally wearing long robes, they would reach to the ground, and they would cover the lower parts of the body, all the way down to the feet. And some believe that that was for respect, that was for decency. When they would appear in public on even solemn occasions, they would even have their feet uncovered. But most time it was covered. And then it says, with two he flew. This was a sign of willing service. This was to praise God. This is why they flew. But I want you to notice verse 3. They called out to one another. 
They said, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We don't know how many seraphim there are, but we do know that there was more than one because we hear them speaking to each other. And this was antiphonal praise. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy. Just going on constantly. And this threefold repetition was how that they would emphasize. You and I, when we would emphasize something, what do we do? We take our pen and we underline it several times. And there we're trying to place emphasis on a word or a phrase or a sentence. In the Bible, when you find something mentioned to two or three degrees, it was done for emphasis. You remember Jesus said, truly, truly, or verily, verily? That was for emphasis. And here when you read holy, 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 it is for emphasis to emphasize that God is holy. In fact, this is called the trihagion. The trihagion means three times holy. No, he's not called holy, holy, holy because that's how the song goes. He's called holy, holy, holy because he's three times holy. That's the very essence of his divine nature. And it's the most significant of all of his attributes. You know, when the angels worship in heaven, they don't say eternal, 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 or faithful, 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 or wise, 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 or mighty, mighty, mighty. No, they say holy, holy, holy. Why? Because God is the Holy One. He is Holy God. He is Holy Father, 1 Chronicles 16.10 says, To glory in His holy name. This here is the most significant of all of His attributes. Now before I give you a definition of holiness, because it's much different than what you would think it would be, we need to understand, as A.W. Tozer tells us, that any attempt to define the holiness of God is fraught with potential flaw and error. And the reason is because no one can ad adequately explain it. All we can do is compare it to ourselves, and that causes major flaw and error. We are unholy, and God is holy. And, but what does that mean? Well, before the fall, Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29 says, God made men upright, but His upright is not in any comparison to God being upright or God being holy, because Solomon went on to say in that verse, but man has sought out many devices. In other words, when man was created in the image of God, he was not given the same uprightness that God possesses. He was created with the potential for sin. In fact, in describing God, James 1.13 tells us that God is untemptable. Psalm 5.4 even says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, and nor shall evil dwell with you. So we must first understand that this is the fundamental difference between man and God. Next, we need to understand the difficulty that is, in, that is involved in defining holiness. I got a little help here from R.C. Sproul who is personally experiencing the holiness of God in all of His fullness right now as we speak. You say, How, how's that? Because He's in heaven. He wrote this in his book, The Holiness of God. He said, The difficulties involved in defining holiness are vast. There's so much to holiness, and it's so foreign to us that the task seems almost impossible. 
There is a very real sense in which the word holy is a foreign word. But even when we run up against foreign words, there's always the hope that a foreign language dictionary can rescue us by providing a clear translation. The problem we face, however, is that the word holy is foreign to all languages. No dictionary is adequate to the task. Our problem with definition is made more difficult by the fact that in the Bible, the word holy is used in more than one way. There is a sense in which the Bible uses holy in a way that is very closely related to God's goodness. And it has been customary to define holy as purity, free from every stain, holy, perfect, and immaculate in every detail. Purity is the first word most of us think of when we hear the word holy. And to be sure, the Bible does use this word this way. But the idea of purity or of moral perfection is at best the secondary meaning of the term in the Bible. So what then does the term mean? Well, the root meaning of the Hebrew noun for holiness and the adjective holy comes from a word that means to cut or to separate, thus to be distinguished from or set apart. It didn't originally refer to ethical purity, but it was used to describe prostitutes who were set apart or devoted to pagan deities such as Baal or Asherah over in Genesis 38:21. Donald Bloch, he points out that in Israel's history, holiness could be applied to non-personal things and places and even pagan gods. He says the ground around the burning bush is holy. The temple is holy. The days are holy. Utensils, garments, food, oil, offerings, all are referred to as being holy. The point is, is that God is separate from everyone and everything else. He alone is the creator he is altogether and wholly other, both in his character and his deeds. He is transcendently different from and greater than all of his creatures in every conceivable respect. If we put it in common terms, we would say God is in a class all by himself. Now, holiness is not primarily a reference to moral, ethical purity, as I said. It's a reference to transcendence. That's a word that you don't really hear. But the word transcendent means literally to climb across. It's defined as exceeding usual limits. To transcend is to rise above something, to go above and beyond a certain limit. And so when we speak of the transcendence of God, we're talking about that sense in which God is above and beyond us. What it's trying to do is get at His supreme and absolute greatness. The word is used to describe God's relationship to the world, which is higher than the world. He has absolute power over the world. The world has no power over Him. Transcendence is describing God in His consuming majesty, His exalted holiness. In other words, it's pointing to the infinite distance that separates Him from every creature. He is infinite, cut above anything else. And no wonder Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you among the gods, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? 
R.C. Sproul again says, When we use the word holy to describe God, we face another problem. We often describe God by compiling a list of qualities or characteristics that we call attributes. And we say that God is a spirit and he knows everything and he's a loving, just, merciful, gracious God and so forth. The tendency is to add the idea of holy to this long list of attributes as one attribute among many. But when the word holy is applied to God, it does not signify one single attribute. On the contrary, God is called holy in a general sense. The word is used as a synonym for his deity. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is. And it reminds us that his love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. His spirit is holy spirit. Psalm 77 verse 13 says, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. And what happened... As he sees this to the temple. That's verse 4. Look at verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. You have here the shout of the seraphim because it's their voice. They're the ones crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So that's the shout of the seraphim. And it's shaking the very foundations of the thresholds of this temple. John Calvin said, If inanimate and dumb creatures are moved, what ought we to do? Who feel, smell, taste, and understand. For no other purpose than that we may obey His word in a holy and reverent manner. Earl Radmacher, he says, If even the doorpost of the heavenly temple shook in response to God's holiness, how much more will the whole earth shake when the Lord visits it? Since the whole context is the first five chapters of Isaiah it summarizes this in 524, chapter 5, verse 24. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised his word, the word of the Holy One of Israel. And because they did this, God responds in anger. If you'll notice in verse 4, it says the temple was filling with smoke. That is a sign of the presence of God, as we find in chapter 4 and verse 5. But more often, it indicates the presence of God in anger and judgment. And it's used that way in Exodus 19.18, 19.20, or rather 20 verse 18 in Revelation 15.8. What you're seeing here is God is about to respond to the five chapters of sin. Let me say this too. As I described the church earlier and I described the culture that the church is in, do you think God's going to leave it like that? Not at all. 
I also believe that from what we're seeing here in these four verses, we must understand what Hebrews 12:14 says, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that's because nothing unclean can appear in his sight. That also means until God gives you his righteousness by faith, you are unholy. And you are clothed in filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. You say, well, what can I do? Never thought you'd ask. There's only one thing you can do. Who is sitting on this throne? Christ. Come to Christ, who is perfect righteousness. He alone can wash away your sin. John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul said in Galatians 1.4 that Jesus gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He took what you and I deserved. And what was that? Judgment. The wrath of God because of our sin. And your response should be like the tax collector in Luke 18. In Luke 18, he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he, claimed, he, he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was nothing like the Pharisee who was standing there also, who was making comparison of himself to him. And he wouldn't even look up and he was praying to himself because if you read the content of his prayer, God wasn't going to receive that. The only one who was going to receive that was him. He was unwilling to humble himself. The tax collector humbled himself. And Jesus, when comparing the two, said this in Luke 18, 14, that the man who humbled himself went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, beloved, I believe if we had a true understanding of what this text is showing us, that we'd all be on our face crying out for the mercy of God. Me too. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God, right? You would fall down like a dead man. You wouldn't go on TBN and say, I went to heaven and I want to report to you that there are no toilets in heaven. That's what one guy said on TBN. Another guy said that every time he goes in to shave, Jesus comes in and puts his arm around him while he's shaving. That is just mockery. It's blasphemy. Even John, the apostle in Revelation 1.17, when he saw that glorious vision of the risen, glorified Lord, it says he fell at his feet like a dead man. I believe that's how you would respond. We should be in awe of God. We should be in awe of His holiness. We should have the same response that Isaiah had after seeing this glorious vision. And let me just speed you ahead for just a minute. Look at verse 5. What did he do when he saw all of this? He pronounced a judgment on himself, he cursed himself. Woe is me as a curse. He said, woe is me, for I'm ruined. I'm coming apart. 
because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I'll just tell you right now, everybody who says that they've seen God, I've never, ever heard them say that. Have you? Why do you scream it at us? Well, because I'm sick of hearing that. Because they don't get it right. Go to your Bible. Open it. Read it. Study it. That's how you know God. And yet we got people out there with their little experiences and God said this to me and God said this and that. And God didn't say any of that. How do we know? It doesn't square with Scripture for one. Number two, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible out loud. Then you'll hear His words in your voice read out loud like we heard this morning. When we are exposed to the presence of God, we fall apart. That is still true today. We're told of Jacob in the Old Testament that he wrestled with God. You ever wrestled with God? You have. When you're wrestling with sin, you're wrestling with God. Because it's God who brought the light to that sin. Again, he pronounced this judgment on himself because he saw how holy God is and by seeing a holy God, he knew that that holy God saw how sinful he was. And so all he could say was, woe is me, I'm coming apart. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What's your response today? Well, in just a couple minutes, you're going to get to share your response because we're going to share in the Lord's table together. And there are people in antiquity that have gotten the table wrong, but they've had more fear about that situation right here in front of me than people who have the truth about the Lord's table do. You know why Martin Luther spilled the chalice when he was doing the Lord's Supper? Is because he did believe that that literally became the actual blood and body of Jesus. It terrified him. Now this is not the literal blood and body of Jesus. This is a symbol this is a representation. This is a memorial. We are doing this in remembrance of Him. And besides, we're doing this because 1 Corinthians 11 tells that each time we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. So, beloved, as you come to prayer now and you come to the table Keep in your mind what you just heard that Isaiah described to us in Isaiah 6, 1-4. to 
And if that doesn't move you, God help you. Right? If it doesn't move me, God help me. Father, there's so many times that I come before you and I don't even know how to pray. And sometimes I just say, help, help me. Help me understand. And I pray that again right now. Help my finite, feeble mind to understand this. The infinite beauty of who you are. And help me also, Lord, to see how ugly my sin is. And every time we come to the table, we're reminded of how ugly it is. And we're reminded of the price that you paid because of it. That you took our punishment on yourself. God treated you as if you were a sinner. But you weren't. And he poured out all of his wrath on you. Because of our sin. Help us to understand that, Lord. Help us to see that as we come to your table this morning. We pray, Lord, all these things.